Join your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 and 29. And I know Tim's already prayed, but that's something I still like to do myself as I come to the Word of God. So I'm going to pray too, okay? Oh, Lord, we give you thanks for the Word of God. Oh, how it speaks to our souls, how it renews us, refreshes us, enlightens us. And we come to that Word today. But we also know that when it comes to the Word of God, that our understanding of it comes through the illumination of the, word, of the Spirit. And so, Lord, we're asking your Spirit to do that work today. Oh, for each one of us, we come from different circumstances and situations that your Spirit needs to illuminate your Word to minister to each of our hearts. Those circumstances we're going through that can be overwhelming, things that can just be trying our souls, uh, things that make it difficult. In fact, even sitting here, our mind has tended to go to those distractions and those trials and those testings. And your word need comes, comes to us and speaks some words of hope, some words of comfort, some words of care. We ask you to do that. To those others who come today, Lord, who find themselves saying that they are followers of Christ, but they know that they have somehow stepped off that path. Their eyes are not set on Jesus, that they're doing things that other people here don't even know what's happening in their life. Oh, they're aware of it. And your spirit there needs to do that convicting work of sort of exhorting them back into a walk with Christ. And your spirit needs to challenge their hearts. And for many, Lord, it's the fact that they are walking with you. Oh, they may be in trials or difficulties. They may be going through some good times, too. But in their walk with you, they need to hear a word of encouragement to press on, that they're on the right track, that they're doing the right thing. Let your spirit accomplish that for them as well. But that your spirit works in each of our lives in the way that only it can do to minister the word for us. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, as we come to the Christmas season, my wife and I uh, have this tendency to uh, put up nativity scenes in our house. And we've got different ones. This is one for our grandkids now, but for our kids. It, it unfolds in a way to make up well, the whole story. Well, it does really. There it is. It does work. And all of a sudden you come up with the shepherds there with an angel. And that's one of the things that we took notice of. We also have another set that we put out. And this one we um, set out on a buffet. It keeps out of the hands of our grandkids. And uh, this one's a little more special. It was a gift given to us. And with this gift, what we do is we put these shepherds up. Because I've noticed that with nativity scenes, there's oftentimes shepherds and sheep. And then this summer, we went out and we were in Israel. When you go to Israel, you're supposed to buy some olive wood. So this year we bought some olive wood, and we got a shepherd there as well. I bring this to your attention because it's interesting how the Bible introduces the birth of Christ. We celebrate the birth of Christ, and somehow shepherds become one of those characters we talk about. But so is the whole Bible. There's a theme of the shepherd through the whole Old and New Testament. When it talks about Jesus Christ, it talks about him being the good shepherd. It talks about being the great shepherd, even the chief shepherd. There's something about Jesus being a shepherd becomes an important thing for us to know. It's also interesting as Jesus preaches through the New Testament, we get to Matthew chapter 9. He looks out onto the, all those people following him. And he says, they're sheep without a shepherd. When you get to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, you almost sense that Jesus has looked out at those people and he's actually wanting to be a shepherd 
to these people. He wants to bring a word to them for them to hear, but he wants to shepherd them forward. So we get to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. We finish it up in verse uh, 27. Then we get verse 28 and 29, and that is not Jesus talking at all. These become the words of Matthew. Matthew's watched this whole sermon take place on the Mount. Gets done, watches everybody process it through, and he gets to the end and he makes his statement, his observation on everything that he's just observed. What actually happened on the Sermon on the Mount? What really took place from his observation of things that took place? Here's what we read in your Bible there, Matthew 7, verses 28 and 29. It says this, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one having authority and not as one of their scribes. So why was the crowd astonished? Why were they amazed by this teaching? Interesting, it talks about the crowd when they're done. There's this amazement, this astonishment, this wow, being overwhelmed by everything that was said by Jesus. Uh, the word's used 13 times in the New Testament when it talks about being amazed or astonished. Two times it's used when a miracle is performed. And that I understand. I mean, let's face it. If I saw Jesus walking on the water, I'd be, I'd be amazed. If I saw Jesus turn bread where all of a sudden he's got this five fish and two loaves, and whew, he feeds 5,000 people and there's 12 baskets left, I'd be amazed. If I saw Jesus turn water into wine, I'd be amazed. That I understand. But that's not how the word is used. 11 of the 13 times it's used of his teaching. His words. It's his words that amazed people. It's his words that astounded people. I want you to think about that. By just hearing the words. Just the words of a person. Just the words that somehow you were amazed and astounded. It's interesting, Hebrews 4.12, when it talks about the word of God, it compares it to a two-edged sword, you know, oof, that's wrong sword, isn't it? <laughs> Did you see it this week? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a two-edged sword. And that's immediately what we think of when we read that verse. But listen to what it does. This two-edged sword has the capacity and the ability to cut between spirit and soul, between bone and marrow, between joint and ligament. You know what you call that? It's not a sword. It's a scalpel. Think about it. They are amazed by the word. I had surgery a few years back on my shoulder. And uh, the surgeon got done. I'm in the recovery room, and he hands me these two pages of prints, of pictures of the inside of my shoulder to demonstrate the good work that he had done. Now, as I looked at that, I was amazed. I had these just, just three, just three little tiny incisions like this around my shoulder. And here I saw this whole shoulder, this whole joint, completely cleaned out of arthritis. We old folks get that. Uh, you young folks get it too. But all that cleaned out. And I was like, whoa. And I was amazed, astonished by the precision 
of the surgeon. I think as these people heard the word of Christ, as they had this sermon on the mount, I think they're amazed, not by what they hear just in their head, but also in the impact of this word, somehow coming down and sweeping into their heart. And also you get this examination, it's so precise, between joint and marrow, between joint and ligament, and bone and marrow it should have been, and the whole idea, able to split things that precisely apart. And Jesus gets astonished. The people are astonished by that. But it tells us what really astonished them, why it was so different. Look there in your text what it says. Verse 29. Why were they astonished? For he was teaching them as one who had authority. Authority. When the word's used in the New Testament, it's used of governments have authority or kings have authority. And all of a sudden, you've got this power that's given, invested into an individual. When you come to the scriptures and it talks about somebody speaking with authority, oftentimes identified with a prophet who speaks with authority. Why? It's the revelation of God to people. When you go through the Sermon on the Mount, something that's quite interesting that Jesus does. He says, you say, and then he says this, but I say, Implying the authority he brings. Why? He's bringing new revelation to these people on the Sermon on the Mount that comes with authority. Now, he demonstrates this throughout the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 8, we find Jesus all of a sudden with the water, the seas, and the waves, and all of a sudden he quiets the waves, the seas, and the storm, and he does it with, it says, authority over creation. He has a situation where he heals a man that he can walk. But before he does that, he says, your sins are forgiven. And all the religious leader says, by what authority? Whose authority do you forgive sins? And he says, is it easier for me to forgive sins or to tell this man to rise up and walk? So he says, rise up and walk. The man walks out of there, which tells us Jesus has authority over sin, over forgiveness. He comes later on, and all of a sudden he does miracles. But he also casts out demons. He has authority over the demonic. You get to the last of Matthew. Matthew comes to the very end of the book, and all of a sudden he stands before his disciples there on Mount of Olives, Jesus with the 11 men. He pauses and looks at them and says, all authority has been given to me on heaven and earth. What authority? All the authority that they'd observed throughout his life before he commissions them. Jesus speaks with authority. Authority of something different. This revelation that comes. It's contrasted, actually. When he had finished, the crowds were astonished by his teaching. Why? For he was teaching as one having authority. And then it adds this phrase. And not like the scribes. So what is a scribe? Well, the scribes were a group of men who developed out of probably after the Old Testament was completed. So for about 400 years, they've been developing. What happened 400 years earlier was Scripture was no longer given. The Old Testament was closed and nobody had spoken. So you got this 400 years of silence. But the world had changed during that time. 
Just like for us, when we talk about the New Testament, it's done. We have issues that come up today that the New Testament never talks about, never chats about. Should you go to movies? Doesn't talk about that. Should you drive a car? Doesn't talk about that. Should you use electricity? Doesn't talk about that. It doesn't talk about those things. So what do we do? We need somebody to interpret the scriptures in order to apply them. That's what a scribe does. Uh, They were religious leaders. They were the theologians of their day. They were the students of the word. And what happened was they started studying. They created this oral law. Here's what the text says. Here's how we apply it. And as you made that application of that law, that in itself became law too. So as they came up with these laws of how to live, to worship Yahweh, they would tell you what to do. Actually, the New Testament refers to their teaching as being a heavy burden upon God's people. It just weighed them down. If there's a word I'd associate with their teaching, it's just perform. Their whole idea, your relationship with Yahweh, your relationship with God is established by your performance. What you do is important. And they told them to perform. Highly respected people. They're respected special places in the worship service, special places in social places, activities and all. In fact, they were so well thought of that when they were buried, they actually buried them right next to the prophets who spoke with authority. Why? They were men of authority. Now, it's interesting how Matthew could have written this passage. He could have written another way, which is probably the way I would have written it. Here's what I would have written. If you look at your text there, I would have probably done this. And when when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching not like their scribes, but as one who had authority. But he doesn't do that. Know why? He wants us to somehow sit back and reflect on this concept of scribes. He understands there's authority. What he wants us to think about are the scribes in our lives. What's in our life that tells us to perform? What's in our life that tells us what to do? Who's the one that speaks into our life? Not what the scriptures say. Not the truth of the word. But those who interpret. Those who apply. Those who tell us what to do. Who are the scribes that tell us to perform today? Over Christmas, Mel and I were reading through an um, Advent devotional. Didn't read it every day, but uh, it's by As- uh, Ann Voskamp. And we came to one which was an interesting passage. She chose 1 uh, Kings 18, Mount Carmel, where Elijah's there with the Baal worshipers. And she starts talking about Baal worship. But she actually starts talking about Baal idols. And then she talks about the idols that we have in our lives. And and here's what she says. You know you have an idol 
whenever you have to perform. I think Matthew would say it this way. You know, you have a scribe whenever you have to perform. What are the scribes in our lives? What are the voices we hear that tell us what to do? Who is it that speaks to you creating this whole performance life? Do you live under the direction of a scribe to perform, but not under the authority of Christ of what he says? Do you live under the scribe of work? Oh, work, driven, perfectionistic, pursuit of excellence. Work driven by ambition and agendas. You want promotion? You want prestige? You want power? You want position? Then you need to perform. Your evaluation comes up each year to do what? To see how well you have performed. The evaluation is oftentimes called a performance evaluation. And work, work, work can be the scribe in your life for all that it offers. The promise of money, promise of retirement program, benefits you get, all that work can offer you. All of a sudden you realize it's the scribe of work that you live under. And it tells you to perform. Uh, there's the scribe of family. The whole idea of what is a family and how does it work? Also, where do we get all the information of what to do? What's your marriage supposed to look like? How's it supposed to function? So when you watch somebody else's spouse and you see how well they do something, and that day after church over lunch you have a conversation about, you wish your spouse would do what this person does. Of that comparison that you do. And what you want out of your spouse. And all of a sudden you got this performance of marriage of what it's to be. If we do this, 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 and this, then we'll have that godly perfect marriage. Though we know that's not true, our desire is to perform that out. How about parenting? How are we driven to parent? By the comparison to other people of what they do? Offering our children everything else that all those other kids have. That the model of our performance as a parent is what we see others doing, assuming that must be the right way to do it or they wouldn't do it. How we choose the schools they go to. Because we think there's a right way to do it. To perform. Whether we homeschool, Christian school, public school. But somehow you do it because you want to perform that you're doing the right thing. What activities are your kids in? How many are enough? The sports. Dramas. Plays. Singing. Musical lessons, all those things, and all the time it takes in your schedule. And you do why? Because to parenting is to perform. For all my friends to know, I'm highly invested in my kids. How we determine our lifestyle by Pinterest, 
what we find there. Oh, all the food. Can we make this tonight, Mel? Oh, we govern our lives by what? Performing. How well do we perform? We take a picture of it to show other people how well we perform. I commented Mel this year, we've gotten far fewer. You know the old Christmas letters you used to get from your friends? You know, <laughs> there were the reports on how well their family was doing. Rarely did you get, oh, we had a tough year. Anyways, you got those long, you don't get those anymore. I said, you know why we don't get them anymore? We read them every day on your Facebook. 365 days a year, I get to learn all about you. Ugh. <laughs> you don't have to write those letters anymore. So all you do is give us a picture. Make sure you put your last name on it, please. My memory's going. It's a whole idea of like, we perform of how we do things. As a family, we're driven by performance. And then there's a scribe of acceptance. I don't care if you're in elementary school, middle school, high school, college. I don't care if you're single or married, divorced. I don't care if you're a widow or widower. I don't care who you are. We all want to be accepted. And we have our way of doing that. Make sure we dress the right way. Whatever that means. We don't want to stand out. We want to be accepted. We process through the scribe of acceptance. What can I do to please people? What can I do to do the right thing that they'll like me? What's the way that I actually have friends here? I just want to be accepted. And we do. And I want to be cared for. What do I have to do? Tell me what to do. And I'll do it. So I can perform. Why? So you accept me for who I... I can't tell you I really am. Why? Because you might not accept me. And we're driven by performance for acceptance. Just check out your Facebook and your friends. We post the good stuff. We're so committed to it, we have Instagram. Did you learn about my life? Instantly. And if I want you to forget real quick, I put it on Snapchat. <laughs> we know how this system works. I'm up, I'm down, I'm gone. Wow. Why? All driven by the scribe of acceptance. Uh, but there's a fourth scribe we need to think about. That's the scribe of the church. But somehow what we do here creates performance within the body of Christ. How we come here knowing there's expectations of us. What are we going to do? Then somehow we can feel manipulated to do things. Somehow there's a sense there's cliques that we want to get into. But somehow even the church, there's the scribes of the church, start telling us how we have to perform in order to be part of the fellowship, part of the community, be a godly, good Christian. Have you thought about the words we use, our vocabulary, to encourage people? The verbs of performance, 
need to go, need to grow, need to serve, need to give, need to sacrifice, need to care. All these words that we constantly give to perform, that we can see that you did what we asked you to do. We become a church of performance. Just like those Old Testament saints that Jesus meets up with and teaches with authority in their lives. That's a tough one. I heard a Baptist preacher one time give a message, and then he, here's what he said. Mary had a little lamb. It should have been a sheep. She went to join a Baptist church and died from lack of sleep. <laughs> you can laugh. That's okay. <laughs> oh, we're so driven, aren't we? So driven. We measure our spirituality, our walk with Christ, our sense of fellowship, even our community, by that we do the right things in the right way at the right time for the right people. Folks, don't misunderstand me. The Lord wants obedience from us. But the important thing is what motivates us for that obedience. Are we doing it to please people? To follow those scribes? who tell us to perform, or are we somehow over here with a heart that the authority of Jesus speaks to that gets exposed to obey him? You know, the people there, they were astonished. They were amazed by Jesus' teaching because he did it with authority. So we're going to find ourselves this year doing a similar thing. Yeah, we've got to start asking ourselves some good and hard questions. We're coming to the new year. In new year, what happens? Hopefully, you get to start packing up some of this stuff that you've put out. Those Christmas decorations, you know. They should go down by at least March 1st, don't you think? Those lights don't have to come down all year, do they? They look nice as decorations for people. I'm the house with the lights on. No, no, not those lights, those lights. You know, at this place we're packing up after Christmas and we're starting the new year. But as we do that, we may pack up all those shepherds. But Jesus is still speaking to us today. You know the word given by a shepherd to a sheep? I think when they got done with this Sermon on the Mount, there was a sense of, listen up. But as soon as he had our attention, you know what it was? Follow me. It's that simple. Just follow me. That's what shepherds tell their sheep. To follow them. It's interesting when you look at uh, John 21... First time Jesus actually met uh, Simon Peter was in John chapter 1. 
He meets his name Simon. He's introduced to him by his brother Andrew. As soon as he meets him, the very first time he meets him, he says, your name is Simon, but we're going to call you Peter. It means rock. Or in today's culture, Rocky. That's who you are, Rocky. That's how he calls him. Very first day he meets him. Get to John 21. After he's denied him three times. And whenever you read this passage, the great emphasis is on the words love, which in the English you can't tell the difference. But in the Greek, they're two different Greek words. Make this big case about it. That's fine. thing that's often overlooked, last personal conversation Jesus has with Peter. He looks at him and he says this. Simon, do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. Then tend my sheep. Simon... Do you love me? You know I love you, Lord. Well, then tend my lamps. Simon, do you love me? Tend my sheep. Three times. He does not call him Peter on the last private, personal conversation with him. He calls him Simon. Why? Because he went back to his old habits his old ways, to his old scribes, and was performing and not following Christ. Why do I say that? Because the very next words of Jesus, the final words to Peter are, follow me. What? Follow me. Jesus' expectation is a good shepherd, is our shepherd, is as he's journeying down the road, he expects to turn around and see me following him. As I journey down, as he journeys down the road, he turns around and expects to see you following him. It's that simple. Just follow me. Don't perform. Just follow me. It's a new year. Not into resolutions, but it does cause stop and think. I want you to think about your life where you are right now. Are you listening to the scribe of work which says perform? Or you listen to the words of Jesus, which says, follow me. Are you listening to the words of the scribe of family, saying, perform? Or did Jesus say, follow me? Or do you find yourself listening to the words of the scribe of acceptance, saying, perform? Or you listen to Christ, who says, follow me? Or are you looking to the scribe of the church, which says, perform? Or to Jesus who says, follow me? Or he teaches with authority, with power of the word, which cuts into our hearts and our souls, not just to expose it, but to get us to follow him. Follow him. Follow him, not perform, to follow him. Not describe of work, not describe of family, not describe of acceptance, not describe of church, but the authority of Jesus to follow him. So you're going to follow him, or you follow your scribes? Let's close in prayer.
Lord, we give you thanks for the power of your word. We give you thanks for Jesus Christ, who is the good and great shepherd of the sheep. We thank you for the ministry he brings into our life and the simplicity of his command following him. Just to say, follow me. Lord, we all have scribes in our lives that we listen to. Scribes who speak very 